0: Hey, welcome to the Project Church podcast. My name is Caleb Cole. I'm the lead pastor here at Project Church in downtown Sacramento. And we're so glad that you came to hear this word. We believe this is going to encourage you, build you up, and give you life. So get ready to receive a message from God. I'm one of the primary leaders of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. The thing that you really want to know about us, if you know anything about us, is that in September 19th, 1999, we started a prayer meeting with worship and we haven't locked the doors since. In other words, this is, this is the thing that's, that's hard for people to get their head around if they've never heard of us. Every two hours, a new worship team, 10 people come out onto the platform and lead a prayer meeting with intercessors in the room, 50 to 200 intercessors, sometimes more. Um, and so this is where people start to get it. On Christmas morning, 8 a.m., 10 people come out and lead intercessors in a prayer meeting for revival for Kansas City and the Church of America. At 2 a.m., when Kansas City's asleep, 10 young people come out, lead a prayer meeting for revival and breakthrough in Kansas City and the Church of America. On Groundhog's Day, 10 people come out every two hours, lead prayer for revival and breakthrough for the Church of America. We partner with uh, every missions organization you've probably ever heard of. They feed us prayer requests, we pray for missions around the world and then they tell us what happened. And so so we pray for missions, we pray for revival, we pray for the church. We pray for the church most because Paul did. That was the content of his prayers in the New Testament. He doesn't actually, this is surprising, Paul doesn't mostly pray for the lost. Paul mostly prays for the church because Paul understood the most effective way to reach the lost was a transformed, revived church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've prayed. Here's the, here's the really interesting thing, and then I'll get on to my sermon because I only have a few minutes with you. But again, I'm so thankful to be here. I'm so thankful, even after the first two minutes that you've let me stay here. The, um, the, uh, the thing that I've found about prayer that's beautiful is uh, number one, the easiest, most long-term way to pray without ceasing and pray without quitting is to not try to stir up my own prayer life, but to pray the Lord's heart from his word. If I pray the Lord's heart from his word, I'm just taking his words and bringing them back to him. It's way easier that way. I don't have to think about it as much, but then something surprising happens. I find that prayer is a trap. Prayer is a trap. God tricks us through prayer. He gets us falling in love with whatever it is we pray for long term. And so when you pray, I've been at the house of prayer for 21 years. When you pray for the church for 21 years, you can't help but fall deeply in love with the church. It's impossible to actually pray for her, to actually pray. I'm not talking about those complainy, gossipy things that we, we do in prayer meetings. We go, Lord, help so-and-so and help the people that are late all the time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about biblical prayers from the heart of Jesus. When you pray biblical prayers, you actually get his heart, his vision, and when you get Jesus' vision for the church, it actually is what keeps you on your knees, That's what Paul said in Ephesians 3.1, Ephesians 3.14. He said, for this reason I pray. In other words, the thing that drove Paul to his knees was Jesus' vision for the church. When you're infected with his vision, his passion, when your heart's alive with the things that burn on the heart of Jesus, it drives you to your knees because you catch it and you end up getting caught up in praying for something so much bigger than whatever it is you wanna add the name of Jesus to in your life. That's why our prayer lives are hard to sustain because the things that we mostly want to pray for are often boring. They're not, they, don't, they can't sustain our heart. They can't sustain our inner vitality. They can't sustain our prayer life for very long because we're kind of praying for our own little things that we mostly can do and are looking for a little Holy Spirit help. But Jesus catches us with a vision for the church that's far beyond what we could have imagined. It's far more beautiful than we could have grasped, and his priorities are so different than ours. And when we catch it, we go, no, it's true. We can't do this apart from you doing what only you can do. And so therefore, we wanna lean in together. So the fact that you are being stirred as a people to enter into the place of prayer, I want to invite you into the quest, the journey of the great surprise of prayer. It's not a means to an end, prayer is the end, because we're communing with Jesus in it. And as we abide and connect with him, we actually get addicted to prayer rather than bored in prayer because we're not praying for our own little list with our small vision, we're actually connecting to the burning man who is the great intercessor. And so I wanna, I just wanna say, I'm so excited with what the Lord is stirring and where things are headed. Turn to Psalm 27. I want to feed into that this morning. Psalm 27. The the man who wrote this, I'm going to say it twice. The uh, the man who wrote this was not a 20 year old idealist. He he wasn't even an 80 year old kind of jaded, burnt out, frustrated guy. He was a, a 40 year old king. A 40 year old king wrote this, well into his 40s, likely. The reason that matters, this really matters, what David wrote in his 40s, he wrote it after wars. He wrote it after conflicts. He wrote it after potential betrayals. He wrote it after a really intense season of testing and promotion by which he finally finds himself in the role of king, and when he becomes king, he actually has the power and the resource to live the dream of his heart, and the dream of his heart was to build a place to commune with God. That's interesting. And so, who was he? Let's just take a minute. David's primary identity. This, is, this matters. In other words, the way that David understood his worth, his value, and what made him successful as a man. He's the king of his nation, and yet the thing that he's aching for, he, he ached for this as from the days of his youth. He ached. He longed. Think about this. He wanted to be a worship leader in the days of his youth. He he was a worship leader on the backside of a hill tending to his father's sheep, and yet the Lord makes him king. But what's interesting is that David never lost his dream of being a worship leader, even as king. He's the king of his nation, and he says, this isn't my dream. This doesn't make me who I am. This doesn't make me successful. David defined success not through his, his, uh, his achievements. They weren't his. The Lord appointed him. David defined success not by his position, not by his title. The ache of his heart from a young boy was to be with God. Therefore, he defined his success in three ways. Number one, he defined his success around intimacy with God, being with him. Knowing God, actually knowing him. Talking about Jesus as a man we actually know, not as a biblical concept, not as an idea but actually talking about him as if he truly is our dearest friend. He defined his success according to his meekness with people. In other words, if I'm really infected with the heart of the one that I love, if I'm really burning with what burns in his heart, then I can't help but want to treat the ones that he loves and fiercely fights for with jealousy and zeal. I can't help but treat them with tenderness and kindness and restraint related to my power. And then finally, David defined success. What made him valuable, what made him important before the Lord. He defined success as how much of what Paul called in Ephesians 1, the spirit of revelation or the spirit of understanding that light that God turns on when we read the word as we're reading the Bible and we're in that fog of I don't grasp this and then suddenly the Bible makes sense and it's like you have a new Bible. Do you know that feeling? Where suddenly the verse opens up to you, you didn't do that, God did and when you have that moment, you've been given one of the greatest gifts you could ever receive, Paul calls it in Ephesians 3, 8, the exceeding riches of the knowledge of Christ. It's riches you've been given in that moment. And David understood that his life had to be built on a different kind of wealth. He was the wealthiest man in Israel by far, and yet he gave what in modern times would be a billion dollars to the tabernacle, of his personal money, to what would be the tabernacle of God's presence and the place where he would go to the prayer meetings and be with God. He gave a billion dollars of his own money. So, this is how he defines success. When I say intimacy with God, defining success through intimacy, through knowing him and being with him, it's about living with confidence in God's tenderness towards us. And it's about living with a zeal and 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 a deep love for walking in complete obedience to the Lord. So therefore, I'm I'm confident in his tenderness. Think about how the two work together. I'm confident in his tenderness towards me. I'm confident in his kindness. His kindness has made me great. His kindness is making you great because it's his kindness that gives us the confidence to keep reaching to know him despite our weakness, despite our brokenness, despite all the ways in in which we think we're disqualified. And yet, his kindness makes me great because I run towards him when I fail, not from him when I fail. So now... As I'm running towards him, I find a gracious God with a generous heart, a Jesus who actually is interested in the friendship. He's interested in the conversation. When you talk to God this week, know that Jesus is massively interested in the conversation you're having. He's leaning in with joy that you're even having the conversation. Most of the earth uses his name as a curse word. Most of the earth is complaining about his leadership or happy to pretend he doesn't exist. That you know him and seek him, that your eye is looking to be set on him. It so moves his heart. When you know that your weak words move his heart, it's the game changer of prayer. A moved God is someone you want to talk with. Think about the man who has so many ideas about your life because he made you. He has so many ideas about your destiny. He has so many ideas about who you are. He has so many ideas about how you love. He has so many ideas about how you lead, how you serve. He's got thoughts. He has insights and those insights are very interesting. They're really interesting. And so when you're leaning in to talk with him, it's that which he wants to say. There's so much that he wants to say we go, God, if you have so much to say, how come it feels like you're silent all the time? He goes, well, it's, it's hard to talk when you give me five seconds here and 10 seconds there. That's not how your marriage works. That's not how your friendships work. The impatient heart is always looking past Jesus to the next thing. Intimacy, therefore, is who we are before God, as one that God loves. That's where it starts. That's how John the Beloved saw himself. Not, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be great. I'm going to love God. I'm going to be an amazing Christian. God, you saved me. I'm going to do this right. God goes, yes, I saved you, and you won't do this right. You won't. You're going to make a ton of mistakes between here and there. You're, the, de- the defining feature of your life is that I love you, and that I chose you, that I pursued you. That I fought for you, that I fought for your heart, that I fight for it now, that I fight to get your eye contact, that I fight to get you into the conversation, that I fight to tenderize your heart by grace, that you might hear my voice in an increased way. I'm the one that loves you. I'm the one that loves you like no one else can. That's what defines us. And so, When we touch that, our whole life then becomes defined by, you love me and I'll love you in return. I'll love you with everything I have. That's the power of David's life. It was his confidence in that. It was his confidence in the love of the Father towards him that continued to draw him in despite his weakness. Many believers worked uh, accidentally, sincerely, but many believers emphasize one of the two. They are either really focused on obedience, but they don't have a... A uh, profound or deep or even shallow revelation of God's tender mercy. And so they're laboring in obedience without connecting to the one who's moved by the obedience. They end up burnt out, not because Christianity is hard, but because they're distant. Christianity isn't hard. Being depressed, demonized, and in despair is hard. His commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. It's just that we continually think our way is easier. So, when they're when they're laboring, they're laboring, they're laboring, there's a couple things that happen that I've seen over the years. I'm older than I look. There's a couple things that I've that I've seen happen over the years. They labor sincerely with an ache to be faithful before the Lord, but they don't have a revelation of his moved heart. They don't actually know him all that well. They don't actually connect with him all that often. And so they labor with sincerity and they label, they labor faithfully, but in the disconnect, either they overdo their own sin. What does that mean? When they sin, they put themselves in a religious timeout and they and they punish themselves with shame because you're living at a distance from how God feels about you, even in your compromise, his zeal and his jealousy for you, even when you fail. Living at a distance from that, you take your own view of yourself when you sin and you superimpose it onto a God that you made up, and you're wondering how to reconcile with the imaginary God that you've created. But then there's a but then I found over the years there's another reaction. This often comes from folks that labor in the church, they labor in serving, they labor in ministry, and they labor faithfully, but they're disconnected from the one that's moved by the service. They're not actually living before an audience of one. They don't have a sense of the eye of Jesus on their small labors, and so they're expecting that their small labors are going to lead to big things, rather than their small labors leading to a big heart. And so, when the small labors don't turn into a big thing, or when the small labors don't turn into recognition or honor or impact like they thought, they end up bit by disillusionment. They end up wondering what all the labor was for. I served faithfully. I've been here for years. I've been showing up early that they don't thank me. They don't, no one thanks me. And so they don't punish themselves like some do. They punish the community. You didn't appreciate me. And the Lord goes, well, were you doing it for them? If you're doing it for them, I want to assure you, they'll never see to the measure that I do and they'll never appreciate to the measure that I do, you were serving the wrong master. And it's even more terrifying. Jesus says, if your eye is good, meaning you're laboring in secret when nobody's looking to obey and love Jesus. That's the key. When nobody's looking, when no one knows, when you can't get any credit, still your heart's alive in the serving. Jesus said, when you do that, when my eye is on you and your your sense, your revelation, your heart is awake and you're connected to my eye on your life. He goes, your whole body will be full of light. He said in Matthew 6. He goes, but if your eye is bad, meaning if you serve but disconnect from the one that's moved by the serving, and you're more connected to how people appreciate you in the serving or the impact of your serving, if you're more connected to what you want to see happen through your serving, your serving is a means to a personal end, Jesus said, if that's where your eye is, your whole body will be filled with darkness, because and how great is that darkness? That passage in Matthew 6, the good eye, the bad eye, it's not talking about pornography. It's talking about the motivation of the heart in serving. Which brings us to Psalm 27, 4. One thing, David said, one thing I've desired, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I would dwell before him, that I would be with him. All the days of my life, all the days of my life. It's what I want my life to be about, said the king of Israel. Imagine if the president of the United States said, you know, this is nice and all, but I didn't ask for this. This, isn't what I, this wasn't the dream of my heart. The, pre, the, the president of the United States, the prime minister of the UK, they look at the crowd and they go, thank you, I appreciate this. This isn't the dream. This isn't what I wanted with my life. I'm still a man who wants one thing and one thing alone. I want to be in the place where God is. I want to be before Him. I want to be with Him. I want to behold His beauty. What is that? You want to do what now? I want to behold His beauty. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord which of course is the great question for you in prayer. Is prayer the thing you do to fellowship around spiritual things? Is prayer the discipline you give yourselves to because you know it's right? You don't. You kinda are done about 10 minutes in, but you wanna be faithful? Which I get when I started doing prayer stuff when I was a youth pastor. I had to come to the prayer meetings when I was 22, 23. I'm a youth pastor. They go, hey, we pray at six o'clock on Sunday nights together. Then seven o'clock we do a service. Please come to the prayer meeting. I'd go, okay. I'd show up, it's six o'clock, I'm there, I love it. By 6.10, I'm like, well, I've, I've, uh, I've exhausted the prayer list. What do I do for the next 50 minutes? If you had told me at 23, hey, in a few years, the Lord's gonna sovereignly transition you to a prayer and intercession ministry with worship in Kansas City, and you're gonna be hours in the place of prayer, I would've went, That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I want to evangelize. I want to see revival. I want to disciple young people into loving Jesus. I don't want to, that would be a waste of my talents. That would be such a waste of me. You're gonna gonna take me out of evangelism and you're gonna put me in a prayer room? Wow, Lord, I, I thought you were a better leader than that. Laura goes, "Yeah, it's because you see the beauty of lost souls finding redemption, but you but you see that more than you see my beauty." Whatever it is that we find most beautiful is what we will give most of our time to. David was moved by the beauty of God first and foremost was captured by it. Are you captured by the beauty of God or are you primarily, which is not bad, but are you primarily captured with the beauty of God as it intersects with your story and and what God has done for you, which is not bad. That is a great starting point. I love God because of what he has done for me is your testimony, but if your whole life in Jesus is built only on your testimony, that doesn't have decades of staying power. You have to have new testimonies. And eventually, those new testimonies of God's activity in your life have to transcend what he does for you and you have to be captured over time with who he is. That's how you endure decades of pain, disappointment, disillusionment, weak, broken people, enemies. How do we grow into loving our enemies? This is the most confusing command of the Sermon on the Mount. How do I love my enemies? It starts with being moved by a beautiful God. I want to behold his beauty. I want to inquire in his temple. It seems like he's saying two things. Lord, I want to be about one thing. Behold your beauty and inquire. Ask you questions. But they're both the same thing. I want to see you and I want to ask you about you. We don't have a vision for a prayer life that involves asking God about God. We have a vision for a prayer life that involves asking God for more, which is not bad. Asking God for... More ministry, asking God for more favor, asking God for more blessing, asking God for more impact. These are all good things. These aren't necessarily negative things, but they're secondary things to the one thing, asking God about God. God, tell me about you. Tell me about your heart, how you love, how you lead, what you care about. You'll be surprised by his answers. I love it, because again, this is a man... In his 40s, we know that he's in his 40s because he's, he's aching in a time of war and conflict where the war's not going so well for him, actually. And as the war in that moment is going poorly, whenever the most pressure is applied to your life, who you really are comes out. And here's the pressure being applied to David's life, and what comes out as a mid-40s man under pressure is, I just want to be with you. I didn't want this king stuff, I didn't want the military, I didn't want the responsibility, I wanted to be with you more than anything else, and I still dream that dream, that I could be with you, what a statement. He's not an idealistic 20 year old, I love 20 year olds, but a radical for Jesus 20 year old does not impress me at all, they have nothing to lose. They have no reputation, they have no bills, they have no obligations, There's just, it's like the most risk-free dive in to be wholehearted I've ever seen. It's like, I'm all in for Jesus. He didn't have much to give up. (laughs) I'm very impressed with an 80-year-old that's all in, with a childlike heart, without any jadedness or cynicism. That's like, to me, in this day and age, that's heroic. How did you get to be 80 without a trace of cynicism? What a trace of jadedness. How do you stay childlike and still believe the best? Love believes all things. How do you still believe the best in people around you? How do you do that? You make a vow at 40. I want my life to be about one thing. Which equals, I'm gonna be with you and keep my heart fresh in our life together. I don't want anything to taint. I don't want anything to rob me of the joy of being with you. If it's a bad, relationship I'm doing Matthew 18. If it's sin I'm being violent to get it out of my life without shame. If it's different distractions I am cutting them out. I don't want anything to get in the way. I don't want anything to taint my heart to receive from you, to experience you, to know you, to feel your presence, to enjoy you. I want the enjoyment of you to be my first priority in life. I'll do anything to lay hold of it. The narrowness of this statement, one thing. It's a strength, but it's also an offense. Yeah. It took David years of seeking God to be able to say this as a reality in his 40s. Do you know how much you have to fight over 20 years? From, he starts at 16. He's now the king of Israel in his 40s. And he's saying, no, I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting. I didn't quite get it in my teens and 20s. I didn't quite get it. My 30s were hard. This guy wanted to kill me the whole time. But man, now that I've come through all of that, I get what life is about. That's the only way you do this right is if you actually get the fog of our culture out and you actually get what life's really about. If you don't get what life's about, Distractions are going to swamp you. They're going to consume you. Your prayer life is going to be filled with the things that you secretly find beautiful, but actually don't advance your cause at all. That's why it's remarkable that David said this. He's still reaching for the grace of God. He's still reaching after all the wars. He's still reaching after all the betrayals. He's still reaching after family betrayals. He's still reaching to go, no, I'm gonna keep my heart tender. I'm gonna keep my heart alive as my top priority. I have desired this, and I will seek it. All the days of my life, it's what got me this far. I'm not quitting now. I want to... uh, invite you in your prayer life to go on a lifelong treasure hunt to discover the beauty of God. Don't just show up for the prayer meeting to get more stuff, more favor, more honor, more blessing, more impact, more promotion. Show up to the prayer meeting to get more God. The treasure hunt to discover his beauty. And that... Beauty, what do I mean by that? I mean the things about God that we find functional and helpful now, but eventually we become moved. Think about this. In our little cold, distracted, kind of hardened heart in a way that we don't want to admit, jaded a little bit, cynical a little bit, weary a little bit, We come to God, we put our cold heart before the bonfire of his affections. We're sitting around the bonfire and we're discovering he's moved that we're there. He loves that we're there. He's excited, he's jealous, he's interested. hes He is all in. We wanna be wholehearted because Jesus is wholehearted in his friendship with us. He's all in with joy. He's leaning in and he's moved. If you stay there, if you just fight to stay there and don't quit when it gets hard, don't quit when it gets boring, don't quit when you're distracted, don't quit when you have a bad stretch, don't spend your next prayer time apologizing for missing your last five prayer times. Don't do that. Just get to the bonfire. And let him warm you with the fire of his love and affections. And as you touch the fire of his moved heart, eventually your heart begins to move. And things that you used to find not beautiful become very beautiful to you. They move you like the most beautiful sunset, they move you like the most beautiful vacation spot. They move you like nothing else can move you. The beauty is radiating. You just see it. You go, that that's it. I want to be like that. That attribute of Jesus. That way that he loves. That detail of how he loves and how he leads. I want to be like that. I find that so beautiful that he loves that way. You're moved by it. It's not just an academic thing. It's not just a theological idea. It's not just a way to... Make your life a little better, self-help plan. But he's actually a man. He's actually burning. And he actually loves you. And we get to be with him. Let's stand. Invite the worship team to come on up. Great job this morning, worship team. That was beautiful. I love the songs. We can't, we can't be a people of all these things. We just can't. We can't sustain a long term life in Jesus and be a people of all these things. We have to become a people of one thing. It's not that Jesus becomes your only thing. You have to work, you have to feed your family, you have to do the taxes, you have to pull the weeds from the garden if it's going to grow. So uh, being a person of one thing doesn't mean you don't weed the garden. Being a person of one thing means you have a different dream than a great garden. It just means your primary dream and everything else becomes secondary. I can't be a person of many dreams. I don't have the capacity to be amazing at everything. If I'm going to be amazing at anything, God, make it be loving you. Knowing you, make me amazing at that, and so many other things fall into place. I wanna invite the prayer team to come on up. I wanna invite you this morning. I don't know where different ones are at with the prayer meetings or prayer. I'll give you a secret. Why do we do prayer meetings? They were Jesus' idea, not ours. We do prayer meetings because it's where we fall in love with each other as we fall in love with Jesus. Prayer meetings are a trap too. We're praying together for something else and we end up falling in love with the people we're praying with. And the Lord goes, gotcha. You never would've hung out with that guy except you prayed with him. You never would've met that family except you prayed together. Gotcha. I'm gonna get you to love what I love as my lifelong, wholehearted quest for your life. As you seek me out, I'm gonna get you to love what I love. I'm good at this. I'm really good at this. So I wanna invite you, as you're considering the prayer meetings, considering prayer, considering growing in prayer, I wanna invite you this morning to to make your vow before the Lord. Make me a person of one thing. Make me a person that throws myself at being loved by you and loving you back. I wanna invite you, just a moment, to, to receive prayer. If, you, if you're saying, I, I need help with this. I want this, I need help, help me. I'd love somebody to stand with me. But really, we all need this. I wanna invite you right now, close your eyes, put your hands in your heart if you want to, if you want to. Lord, I'm asking right now, move and awaken and cause our hearts to burn. For the things that burn in yours, awaken my heart. to to beauty. Awaken my heart to know you, to love you, to see you, to enjoy you. I don't want to just serve you. I want to enjoy you. I want to do more than follow you. I want to like you. I want to know you. So I'm asking all over this room and beyond, I'm asking for help, grace, and power to the heart right now, in the name of Jesus, to know you. All the days of our life, God,